Okay, good morning. My name is Chris, one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, I want to welcome you all. So glad you're here. So great to be able to stand together and uh, praise Jesus. If you're new to the church, uh, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being bold enough to step in. If you're new to this whole experience of who Jesus is and you're here exploring, uh, thanks from the bottom of my heart for the courage to step into, into this church and be here with us. Uh, the goal this morning is I'm going to talk for about 45 minutes, uh, hopefully. Uh, I know if you're not, and, and even those of you that are uh, grown up in the church, uh, this morning is a really special Sunday because it's the beginning of the NFL season. And so... You, you probably want to get home and, and watch football. And I, I'll just tell you that uh, the only team that really matters is playing tomorrow night. And they're on at 7 and they don't wear red. So I'll just tell you that. So, no, I'll get you out of here before then. Uh, so if you are new to us, we're, we're in this series uh, called uh, Out of Eden. And we're, we're walking through the book of Genesis, Genesis, specifically Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going through the creation story. And, and my friends here, Adam and Eve, are with me on the stage. That's who these cutouts are. And we've been talking about how God has created all things. And you go through Genesis chapter 1, and then you get into Genesis chapter 2, and the, and the creation of Adam and Eve is, is highlighted. And then it, it reaches a pinnacle or kind of a climax, as Pastor Adam talked about last week, and kind of put that stamp on the end of the creation story. And so where you find us this morning is in Genesis chapter 3. So I would encourage you to open your Bibles um, to Genesis chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, let's say you don't even have a Bible, I'd love for you to come and ask me afterwards. Uh, we'd love nothing more than to, to get a Bible into your hands. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, though, Genesis is really easy to find. Uh, it's the first uh, book in, in Scripture. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. Now, if they were to, if Hollywood was to, to decide at some point to make a movie about the book of Genesis... The first two chapters would be really exciting. There would be a lot of energy, uh, a, a lot of you know, cool music going on, a lot of bright pictures and scenery, and just a lot of wonder comes to mind as you think of that picture of God creating this beautiful garden uh, called Eden. Now, if, if it were a movie, Genesis chapter 3 would be the point in the movie where everything kind of changes. You're introduced to the villain, the, the music would change. I think the background would become dark. Uh, it would just be different. And so we, we find ourselves here in Genesis chapter 3 uh, being introduced to this villain. So my goal this morning for us is to talk about who the serpent is. And we'll find out later that that's actually Satan or the devil, whichever term you like. And we're actually going to spend uh, all morning talking about... Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where the introduction of the serpent. But in order to do that, there's a lot more work we have to do. So we'll jump around and, and be in a couple different parts of the scripture. Uh, but what I want to do to get us started here is just read Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 19. So I'd invite you to just follow along with me uh, if you have your Bible. If not, peek at your neighbors. Uh, I promise they won't mind. So here we go. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not, or, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit and I ate from it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? 
The woman said, it's the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing, in which all the women in the congregation said, thank you very much, Eve. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat and of you will eat the plants of the field. So, if you work in a garden or you are a farmer, the thorns and the thistles you can thank Adam for that. But by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the to the ground, since from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to the dust you will return. All right, so much here that we could uh, talk about, and we will get into a lot of this in the coming weeks, uh, the temptation and then how God responds to that. But uh, as I said, the, the specific goal for us this morning is to look at this serpent. Now, what I want to do uh, to start here is many of you probably have grown up in the church. You've gone to Sunday school at some point. You, you might have heard this account a hundred times. And you probably have some reference. You, as you read this, you're reading it with some kind of background information. You know other parts of scripture, and so you read it through that lens. But what I want to do for us this morning is I want to try to back that away and think that you are coming into this for the very first time. You are reading Genesis chapter 3 with no other knowledge at all. Now, if you do that, there's some things that are going to jump off the page at you that you are going to kind of find a little peculiar, peculiar. Look at it with me. Genesis chapter one or Genesis chapter three, sorry, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, stop right there. Have any of you ever run into a snake that talks? Probably not. But something is very different here before the fall taking place in the garden because the writer doesn't give us any evidence that Eve is shocked by this. Now picture yourself walking through the garden or walking through the woods and you run into a snake and the snake says to you, how are you doing? That's going to cause you some alarm, right? You're going to kind of step back. But it doesn't, the writer doesn't give us any evidence that Eve is surprised that the snake can talk. So there's obviously something different going on here in the garden. Now, the second thing I notice is as we go further in the account, as you get to verse 14, there's something very specific that happens. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, if you're reading this with no background, You might ask the question, how do we know that the serpent is Satan or the devil? Because God here actually curses. Who does he curse? He curses the animal itself. I mean, when you picture in your mind, think about it when you picture in your mind a, a snake. All right. You probably picture this. All right. This is probably something similar to what you would picture. A snake that crawls on its belly. And it eats the dust of the ground. Now, I don't know if they literally eat the dust, but when your face is that close to the ground, I guess you're going to get some in your mouth. So that's the animal that God has actually physically cursed. So how do we know that that is Satan? Now, I will say this. If you are a parent and your children want to get a snake, they come to you, they say, Mom, Dad, we'd really like to get a snake. Okay, you can. I'm going to give you some ammunition to defend on this one. They are cursed by God. Okay? We're not inviting an animal into our house that is cursed by God. We're not having it. All right? So there you go. That was free um, for you. So we'll keep going here. So I think the picture of what we see, what, this, this being that we see Eve running into, probably looks similar to this. Okay? That's, that's the Geico gecko. Now, I realize that's a gecko, and it's not... Uh, a snake, but it's the closest thing that I could think of that walks on feet and talks, 
right? But this is probably something similar to, to the snake that Eve would have run into, all right? So we have some questions to answer. If, if you're new to Scripture, and maybe even if you're not, how do we know that this, this serpent is, I mean, everybody says it's Satan or the devil. Well, in order to do that, we're going to leave Genesis chapter 3. There is a lot of Scripture that God gives us in, in reference to Satan. He tells us a lot. But one of the things that God does is he does not just give us a chapter and verse. I wish it was like this. Like we could turn to this one book, one chapter or a couple chapters, and it just gives us an information list of all we need to know about Satan. But God in his infinite wisdom didn't do it that way. He wrote it throughout the pages of scripture. All right. And as Satan enters into human history, we find out a little bit more about him and then a little bit more about him and then a little bit more about him. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a walk, kind of a journey through scripture and look at what God has told us about this enemy of our soul. Now I say this just to let you know up front, we're going to look at a lot of passages of scripture. And if you're not familiar with it, don't worry, I'll help you out. We'll get through it together. Uh, but I, I've never done this. I've never spent this much time uh, speaking through scripture, this specifically. Uh, but I want to warn you up front, that's what we're going to do. Now, as I say that, I want to just give you one uh, kind of caveat here, a little bit of a rabbit trail, and then we'll get back to where we're going. But if you are somebody that wants to have a relationship with, with God, you want to know this God that's created you. One of the things that I think is so important that you have to do is you have to spend time in his word. Because he's given us the truth about who he is. He's revealed to us who he is. And it's here for us to read it, to know it, to have a relationship with him. But you cannot cheat this. There is no shortcut to an intimate relationship with God. We live in a world full of Facebook statuses, Twitter posts, vines, and all kinds of other stuff that, that is, is very quick, sound bites, information. Right? And it comes at us very fast. And that's the world that we live in. And it's okay. I'm not knocking that. I have a Facebook. I have a Twitter. I have, you know, those kinds of things. I understand what, what's going on there. But our temptation is to just get our information about God through these quick little sound bites, these little verses. And we pull things quickly out of context and we can miss the whole, the whole point of it. I'll share this story real quick. Uh, for those of you that are, are, uh, in a dating relationship, maybe you, you're married or you've been married uh, for a long time. I want you to think about that time when you were first dating, all right? You first started dating somebody. And when I was, first started dating Aaron, uh, it was shortly after that point when, when we were dating that I left to go to college. And when I was at school, we didn't really have a chance to communicate a whole lot. I am not very good on the phone. I'm just not a person you want to talk to on the phone. I'm very quick on the phone. So she would write to me. She'd write me emails or letters. And as I would get those, those emails or letters, uh, I would read them in their entirety. I, I would push through them. I, I would read them. And I would read them over and over and over again because I wanted to know what she was thinking who she was, what, what, made, what brought her joy, what, what hurt her, what brought her disappointment, what she thought about me. And even to this day, sometimes, you know, I have some of them in, in my sock drawer and I'll, you know, get my socks out and I'll pick up one of those letters. And I don't just read like one little sentence, but I read the whole thing because I'm still just enamored and I want to know her. And so as you think about your relationship with God, you cannot get what you're looking for unless you're willing to spend some time there. All right, so that was off the beaten path, but here we go. Here we go. We're going to go through a lot of scripture, and we're going to work through a lot of it. So I would just encourage you to strap in and buckle up. So, so the first thing, how do we know that this serpent is Satan? Well, there was this guy by the name of John. John was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was a disciple of Jesus. And all of the disciples, it's one of the proofs that I know that Jesus is who he said he was, historically, is what the disciples went through after his death and resurrection. Now, John is one of the only disciples that wasn't killed for his faith. But you think about it. If you were a follower of a man, Jesus, who wasn't who he said he was and you knew it, you probably wouldn't die for that. 
or you wouldn't be thrown into prison or exiled to an island for a lie. But these men knew the truth about who Jesus was. And John was one. Now, fortunately, he didn't get killed for his faith in Jesus. But what did happen to him was he was put on this island and God put him there for a reason. And while he was on this island near the very end of his life, he's given a vision of the end of time. And it comes to us in the book of Revelation. John writes it down. God says, write all these things down. So John is writing about the events that are to come. All right, let me be clear about that. Events that are to come. And here's what he says. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in, the hand, in his hand a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. John wanted there to be no doubt who he is speaking about. So he uses four different names for Satan. He calls him the dragon. And then referring back to Genesis chapter 3, he says that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. He says it in a different spot too. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. The great dragon, there we have the dragon again, was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now in here, he gives us something a little bit different. Another piece of information. So what is Satan's intent? What is he out to do? Well, there it says it. Who leads the whole world astray. Satan's mission from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 was to cause us or lead us away from God. Because he doesn't want us to worship God. He doesn't want us to be in a relationship with God. He doesn't want us to bring glory to God. He wants anything but that. And so whatever he can do to lead us away from that God that created us, that's what he's going to do. So he doesn't care if we don't worship him But as long as we worship something that isn't God, that's his goal. That's his desire. That's what I would say is his intent. So another question may come about, well, okay, if that's his intent, how does he execute that? What what power does he have to be able to do that? And I'm I'm glad you're such a smart audience that you would ask me that because it's in my notes. So I know where I'm going. So Ezekiel chapter 28 Uh, I want you to open there with me. It's the last passage I'll have you open to, but it's so important that I want you to spend some time just looking at Ezekiel chapter 28. So again, if you're unfamiliar, Ezekiel is in the Old Testament and and God put this thing called the table of contents in the front of your Bible and and you can feel free to look at it there. Don't feel bad if you have to look there. It's okay. Um, But Ezekiel chapter 28 is where we're going to be. So as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background information. Ezekiel is a guy who is a prophet in the nation of Israel around 600 BC, right? Around the time of 600 BC. And the nations around the nation of Israel are wicked and evil. And one of the things that God used to do in the Old Testament was he had these prophets that he would give a word to about what's going to happen. So you, if you were a prophet, you were a deliverer, a messenger from God. You would give information. And one of the things that he gives Ezekiel is about this, this nation that is uh, close to Israel called Tyre. And there is a ruler there that is a wicked man. He's proud in his heart and he does a lot of evil things. And so the message that God gives Ezekiel about that ruler is, I want to let you know that your kingdom's going to fall and you're going to die. Now, could you imagine being a prophet of God and that's the information that you have to deliver? I mean, nothing like being a messenger that has to deliver. Oh, yeah, by the way, uh, yeah, you're arrogant and uh, proud and your kingdom's going to collapse and you're going to die. Have a nice day. I mean, that's basically what God, the message God had given Ezekiel. So he starts out in Ezekiel 28 and he's talking about this. And then in verse 12, something critical changes. And you'll notice the word that is used here is to the king, he says, son of man, which he's speaking, God is speaking to Ezekiel, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre. Now you might back, back away from that and say, well, isn't he speaking to this man, this ruler of Tyre? Well, if you would go to the beginning of Ezekiel 28, you would see that the ruler is, he uses the word ruler. It's very different than the word king. He's speaking to the physical person where here in verse 12, he changes to the word king. He is speaking to the one that is behind the wickedness 
and arrogance and pride of that physical person, that ruler. So he's actually speaking to Satan. And as we go through this passage, you'll get a lot more evidence that he's not speaking to the physical person ruler of Tyre, but actually Satan who is behind that wicked man. Okay, so here we go. This is what the sovereign Lord says. So God is giving Ezekiel his words. And he says, you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty, or, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, Eden is some thousands of years before this time in, uh, in Ezekiel's life. So he's obviously not speaking to uh, the physical person. Also, you'll notice, he says that you were there in the garden of Eden. You were there in Eden, that, the garden of God. More evidence that this person, Satan, is who actually entered into the serpent and who is the one who deceived Eve. And also something else I want you to notice, I'll point this out. How does God describe Satan? How does he describe him? If you were to walk onto the street or if I were to take a pole out on the street and ask, well, what does Satan look like? If you had to draw a picture of him, what would you draw? I would guess that many people would draw something similar to that. Right? When you think of Satan, you think of two horns, a pitchfork, kind of a, a lot of fire, uh, ugly guy. But that is not the picture that God gives us. That's not the picture that God paints of what Satan looks like. Look at it again. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Now, much later in human history, a guy by the name of Paul comes along. And Paul is one of the most powerful figures in all of the early church in the New Testament. Plants many churches and writes 13 books in the New Testament. And in one of those books, he's warning the people of Corinth, a church. He's talking about these people that will come that are false prophets. They will come giving you information that it will sound good, but it will actually be false. And this is in his description to them and his warning to them. He gives this description of Satan. And remember how I said, it's weaved throughout scripture. All of these things about Satan, we just have to be able to put them all together. And no wonder, this is Paul speaking to the church. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. As an angel of light. Now he's speaking about people that will come with this message that sounds true and they will claim truth and enlightenment, but in fact it will be false and deception. And he says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So it's important as we think about this that we understand that Satan isn't this ugly being that is kind of the welcome committee to hell. Like if you make it there and he's there, hey, welcome, sorry you didn't make it there, your room's on the right. Like it's not like that. Okay, that's not who Satan is. All right, so let's keep going. Long way to go. You were in Eden, verse 13, the garden of God. And then he says, and every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, emerald, crystallite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. And your settings and mountings were made of gold. And on the day you were created, they were prepared. All right, very important thing that comes out of this passage. On the day you were created. Satan is not an equal to God. Satan is not an equal to God. He's not as powerful as God is. It's not like the Marvel comics where you have the good guy and the bad guy and they're equal in strength. That is not the case here. Satan is not all powerful. He is not all knowing. And he is not everywhere at one time. God is everywhere at one time. God's presence is here in this place. It is in Africa. It is in China. It is in Russia. It is in Thailand or anywhere else in the world that you can think of. God's presence is there. Satan does not have the same kind of power that God does. Satan cannot be here and there at the same time because he is a created being. Now, I want to point some things out to you. Uh, We're going to use a different passage uh, to get uh, to where we want to go. Because this is demonstrated very clearly in a book called Job. So I want to read through some of Job with you. Uh, Job was a man that lived very long ago. And he was a man that God said, God himself said, This is a man that fears me, speaking from God's perspective, and shuns evil. He doesn't like evil. He pushes away from evil. And he has a fear of me. So let's look at this book of Job. Job chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 6. 
So this is Job's story. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? I think this is more for our benefit than it is God's. God knows where he was. Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and an upright man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. Don't miss this. Everything he has is in your power. So what's about to happen to Job does not come from the hand of God. It comes from the hand of Satan. It's very important. But on the, hand, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. In other words, God gives Satan license and says, go do what you will. Don't hurt him himself. So we're about to find out what happens. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put your servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. If you ever thought you had a bad day, it does not compare to Job's bad day. So, We get some things, we find out some things about Satan, very clear in this passage that I want to point out to you. The first is he has to ask for permission. Satan does not have the power to do whatever he wants to do. He wanted to attack Saul or uh, Job. He wanted to bring death and destruction. And most of all, what he wanted to do was knock a man that was fearing God off of that plane and lead him astray. That's what he wanted to do. But Satan has to ask for permission. He cannot do whatever he wants to do. Next, he can't do anything to break God's protection. Notice when he comes to God, he says, God says to Satan, have you considered Job, a guy that fears me and shuns evil? And Satan's response is, yeah, but doesn't he do that because you've placed protection around him? Now, I think it's funny. Uh, I'll take a, a minute to point this out to you. I think it's very funny that God uses, or Satan uses the word, a hedge of protection. I mean, have you ever thought about that? If you've been around Christians long enough or you are one of these Christians, maybe you pray this, God, I pray a hedge of protection around these people or this or that. That's what we're praying for is that protection. I think we should use like a wall or a fortress or something much stronger than a hedge, but God get, God's the one who wrote the Bible, so he gets to pick what he wants. So he can't do anything to break God's protection though. And think about this as a parent or as a husband or a wife. How often do you pray for protection to be around your children, around your spouse? It's a challenge to think about that. I know I was challenged personally as I prepared this, that Satan can do nothing outside of God's or inside of God's protection. But it is when God removes his protection that Satan is allowed to work. All right, last one. He brings pain, death, and destruction. I pointed that out to you, that, he, that God says, do whatever's in your power, but don't touch the man. Think about all that happens, all that happens to Job. The raiding parties come in, the winds sweep in and and destroy the house where his children are and they all die. Think about every natural disaster that happens. Recently, we have the wildfires out in the West, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes, even things like uh, the Sandy Hook event that happened, uh, what was that, a year ago in Connecticut. I mean, these terrible tragedies. And when they happen, what, what do most people ask? God, why did this happen? And we point the finger at God 
when Satan is the one that Jesus told us he is a thief and he comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And yet nobody gets angry at Satan. Nobody says, look at what he is doing again. And yet Job, in the book of Job, it points out that he has the power to do those things. Now, of course, you could step back one step and say, yeah, Chris, but didn't God allow him to do that? And I would have to say, yes, God, for whatever reason, God allowed that to happen. And I don't have the answer to that because God is way bigger than I am and his thoughts are way beyond me. But the agent of death, the one that brings the pain and destruction is Satan. Something to point out. All right. So let's, uh, let's keep going back into Ezekiel because I don't want to rabbit trail too far. Uh, we'll run out of time. Uh, so back into uh, Ezekiel chapter, chapter 28, verse 14. So you were anointed as a guardian cherub. This was, who, this was Satan's position in heaven. He was anointed as a guardian angel. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God and you walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. There you have it again. He was created till wickedness was found in you. And through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. And I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and I made a spectacle of you before the kings. So where is Satan now? You might ask that question. He's been thrown out of heaven. Now, I understand as you read this and as you read, look at Ezekiel, uh, that if, especially if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, you might say, all right, this is kind of, it's kind of weird. You know, you have this account in Genesis and then you have in Ezekiel, this prophet that God speaks to about what the angel was doing. And, and so you might struggle with that. And I, I get that. Uh, one of the things that I, that I always look at is, is what does Jesus say about this particular topic? Because Jesus, all right, no matter what you believe uh, about scripture itself, Jesus, uh, it's, it's a historical fact that he was killed, all right? It's hard to deny historically who Jesus was, all right? That he was killed, crucified, and then was resurrected. There were many witnesses that saw that. And so if you are a guy that can predict your death, die and then rise again and start a church, a movement that has yet to stop. I'm going to put more weight on what you say. I'm going to listen a little closer. So what Jesus has to say, I put a lot of emphasis on. And Jesus backs up Ezekiel's account. He says, yeah, this is actually what happened. So you find this in the book of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 10, Jesus was speaking and he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Jesus saw this account, of course, because he was there when it happened. He saw Satan cast out of heaven and down to the earth. Now you might ask, where is Satan? And I would guess that if you go and you poll people and you ask, where, where is Satan right now? Where is the devil? If they believe in the devil, they would say he is in hell. And I would tell you that that is one of the most common misconceptions. And I think that Satan is very glad if we think that. Because as I said before, he is not the welcoming party there in hell. But rather what, what scripture teaches us, what God tells us about Satan, is that he is roaming throughout the earth. Remember the account in Job. When he comes to God, when Satan comes to God and God asks him, where are you? Where were you? He says, I was roaming throughout the earth. Then you get Peter later. He was also a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And this is what he says. He gives the the church this warning, be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Looking for someone to devour. Satan is roaming through the earth looking for somebody to deceive. And I would say that his demons are doing the same thing. And... Let me stress this. Satan and his demons are alive and well. They're alive and well. And we need, to, we need to understand that. We need to acknowledge that fact. Because if you don't acknowledge that fact, you are in great danger. Great danger both as an individual and us as a church of being deceived. Of being deceived. And his work, remember what his work is. It is to create distrust in our heart towards God. It is to get us to worship other things. And one of the things that I think happens is that we make our enemy out to be everything but Satan. 
Okay, so we think, all right, Hollywood is the enemy because of what they put out. Our government is the enemy. The Democrats, the Republicans are the enemy, all right? These are not the enemy. It's not the, the gay and lesbian community is not the enemy. The, the church up the street is not the enemy because they sing different songs than us. They are not the enemy. Your neighbor who lets his dog poop in your yard is not the enemy. All right, he's not the enemy. But the enemy of our soul, he sits in the background and he wants none of the credit. He's so happy that we don't give him any credit. Because we forget that he exists. And if we forget that he exists and that he is real and fighting against us, then we can't fight against him. We can't fight against him. An author that I really appreciate, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. He says this, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race, the human race, can fall about the devil. Speaking about Satan and his demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence altogether, which many people have done. Or the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors because they don't want us to begin to combat against them. So now I want to get into, all right, we've kind of laid the groundwork of who he is and what he's up to. And I want to get into what we do, how do we combat against it, and and how is what he's doing working against us in our hearts. And so to do this, I know that some of you are visual learners, so I'm going to need, we're going to need to do something that I don't, I don't think I've ever done, but I I need a volunteer and I'm not going to ask you to come up and sing a song or read scripture. All you got to do is come up here and sit down. That's all you have to do. So if you ever wanted, in the first service, I asked this and Sonny, Sonny Funderwood, if you know who he is, he came up and he's like, I just always wanted to stand on stage when all these people were here. So, so if any of you have ever wanted to stand on the stage, here's your opportunity. All you got to do is come sit down. Do I have any volunteers? If not, I'm going to call on somebody because the NFL is going to start soon. <laughs> any volunteers? No, none. No? All right, Calvin. Thank you. Great. For those of you who don't know, this is Calvin. Calvin is a 49ers fan, unfortunately. Yes. So, all right. Yeah, that's good. Sit right there. Uh, so let's just for, uh, for the sake of this discussion, say that, that uh, Calvin, has, Calvin and I, there's a conflict between the two of us, all right? There's an issue. And you can do this in a broader sense. You could say it's an organization. It's a group of people, uh, whatever. But for this, for this demonstration, I will say that you and I have an issue on an individual level, all right? Maybe I found out that you've talked bad about me. Maybe you put something on Facebook about me that wasn't true or whatever it was, all right? So you can plug in here whatever the conflict is in your own life, all right? So there's a conflict between Calvin and I, all right? Now, there's a couple things that I can do. There are several ways that I could respond to Calvin, right? The first one, and this is probably more of my nature of, of who I am, and that's why I put it first. But I, I could act like there's not an issue between Calvin and I, that what he did, ah, it's no really, not really a big deal, doesn't really bother me, I can let it go, all right? But when in reality, it's still bothering me, it still hurts, all right? There's still pain there. But I'm choosing to kind of ignore it. And what, kind of, what can happen in that is as I passively say, yeah, everything's okay, but it's not really okay, I can start to withhold from him things that I probably should give him, all right? I should probably be praying for him. But I don't do that because of the pain that's in my own heart. Or maybe I pray, God, bring down the fire from heaven and destroy him. Maybe I pray that. But I'm not praying in a way to bring about restoration. I'm not praying in a way that builds up our relationship. And maybe I withhold love from him. So there's a time when, you know, maybe we should spend some time together, but I, uh, I got something else to do. But I don't really want to address the issue. So that's one possible response. The second is anger. All right. Maybe you're an angry person, which that's not my makeup, but, or my disposition, but maybe it's yours. So he does something against me. I'm coming right back at him. All right. Verbally, I'm going to attack him. Physically, I might attack him. I won't punch you. It's all right. So... Physically, I might go after him. I I might be aggressive towards him. I might begin to tell other people, I can't believe what Calvin has done to me. I can't believe what he said about me. Can you believe that? Will you please pray for him? All right? Under the guise of of trying to be, you know, holy and righteous, but really I'm angry at him. All right? Those are two possibilities. And what God tells us that happens, and this, this is the way that I believe Satan works 
his best is when there is dissension and divisiveness between the two of us. And Paul, when he was speaking to the church in Ephesus, he is telling them about interpersonal uh, conflict, talking about how do I live as a person that, that loves the Lord? How do I treat others? All right, he's talking about that. And one of the things he says is, and do not, he actually says, in your anger, do not give the devil a foothold in Ephesians chapter 4. All right, because what can happen is I can give the devil a foothold in my life. Where he begins to work in my heart, and it's not so much about Calvin as it is about me. He begins to work in my own heart, and he begins to deceive me from the place where I should be in my relationship with Calvin and in my relationship with God. There begins to, there's, there's roots of bitterness that can be planted there. There's distrust between God and I because maybe he's violated me in some really bad way and he's still flourishing. He's still, he's doing fine. Job's going well. He's, he's rolling in a new car. Nothing's seeming to happen to him and I'm getting upset. And so I can begin to say, God, why are you allowing Calvin to flourish when he sinned against me like this? And I distrust God and it plants these roots of bitterness within my heart and it leads me away. And it brings separation between me and him and it brings separation between me and God. And that is how Satan works. That's how he gets a foothold in your life. Because remember, he wants to deceive you and keep you from worshiping God. So there's more to this. You doing all right? Good, okay. So Ephesians chapter six. Finally, be strong in the Lord. He says this just two, two chapters after he talked about uh, not giving the devil a foothold. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. There it is again, the devil's schemes. So we got to take a stand against that. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is not against one another. It's not against one another. But as long as we are satisfied to fight these battles, these skirmishes on a horizontal plane with one another, we will never be unified we will never be unified to fill out the, or fulfill the great commission and storm the gates of hell as a church because we're too busy with the friendly fire. We're too busy fighting amongst one another. Oh, we shouldn't sing this song. We shouldn't sing that song. We should do it this way. We shouldn't do it this way. And the core of the message is still the same, that Jesus has come and he has forgiven us of our sin. And now we can go forward together and begin to tell others that message. But as long as we're still satisfied with fighting against each other, we will never be unified in fighting against our enemy. So there's a third option. I got ahead of myself. There's a third option of how I could handle this conflict with Calvin. And the answer is I could forgive him. Now that seems simple. It may be a bit petty for me to say that from the stage. Like, yeah, that's easy for you to say, but you weren't really hurt by him. And I get that. But what God tells us we can do, and I, I may need to have a really serious conversation with Calvin. I might need to do that. I might come, need to come and speak truth in love to Calvin. I might need to get others around us to come and be involved in the conversation or in the conflict. That may be a reality. But ultimately what I need to do in my own heart is say, God, I recognize what you have done in my life through Jesus that you have forgiven me. And despite all my sin, despite all the times that I've sinned against you, you have offered me forgiveness and grace and mercy. And then you ask me to do the same. So when I can offer Calvin forgiveness in our conflict, it changes the way I interact with him. There might not be restoration. It might not come because I can't handle how he's going to respond to me. That might not happen. But within my own heart, I can say, God, I've done everything I can to restore that relationship with Calvin and I've offered him forgiveness and I don't hold it against him anymore. And now all of a sudden it changes the way I act because though I disagree with Calvin, maybe we still have that conflict. I can pray for him in a way that is bringing restoration 
And, and it brings grace and mercy rather than distrust and conflict and dissension. Thanks. Excellent help. Go Niners. All right. All right, so we're running out of time. I've got to close this thing out. And I want to wrap it up by giving you three things. That's a pastor's best friend, three things. Um, so three things that you can uh, kind of do. As we, as we talk about, all right, we laid this out. We laid out how he works. We laid out who he is and how he works and what he's up to. So what do I do now? And that's what I want to get you to leave here with, thinking about. So what do I do to fight this enemy of my soul? And God gives us a lot of information. He tells us a lot of how we can handle this. The first thing that I, I think is necessary is trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. That's the first thing. If you are going to fight this battle against Satan and his demons and the struggle against the powers of darkness, you must first trust in Jesus. If you are in this room and you haven't yet to, to trust in Jesus, then you are in great jeopardy of being attacked by the enemy. Um, I would say it this way. Hebrews chapter 2 puts it like this. Since the children, you and I, have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So on the day that I stand before God and the accuser of my soul, which is what Revelation calls him, John calls him the accuser in, in Revelation, Right? The accuser of my soul comes and he looks at me and he says, yeah, look at this, Chris, or look at this, God. Look at the pride in Chris's heart. Look at the times that he's talked poorly about somebody else when he shouldn't have. Look at the times that he neglected what you put there for him to do. And God will say, Jesus paid for that sin. There is no accusation that you can bring against him. And when you read it in Romans 8, it sounds like this. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So the sin that is in your life and in my life, and as Satan comes to accuse us of it, we can say, Jesus went to a cross and he said that it was finished so that I might have life, so that we might have life, and that there is no accusation against us anymore. So that's the first thing, trust in Jesus. The second, Resist the devil and he will flee. It comes out of this passage in James. James says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He must flee from you. If you resist him and you resist temptation, Satan has to flee from you. All right? And then he goes on and he says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands through trusting in Jesus, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now there is a temptation here. A temptation to look at Satan... And be able to say, uh, we stand before God and we've sinned and there's ways, there's things that we've fallen into. And we look at it and we say, Satan made me do it. Satan made me do it. And if you look in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, how did that work for Adam and Eve? Remember, they kind of pointed down the line. Adam said, ah, it was Eve's fault. Eve stands here and says, ah, it was the devil's fault. And there was still punishment. They were still accountable for their actions. Just like you and I are still accountable for our actions. So we can't look at the end of, our, end of our life and get there before God and say, well, the devil made me do it because that won't work. And God's given us the ability to resist him. The last one, and this one I can't emphasize it enough. There is, I could honestly preach for another 45 minutes on just this one, but I won't. But I'll say this. Prayer is the weapon that God has given us against the enemy of our soul. Prayer is the weapon that God has given us against the enemy of our soul. And I'll finish with this, uh, speaking about Jesus. Jesus, when he was uh, on the earth, he preached a lot of sermons. One of his most famous sermons was the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, he tells people how to pray. And for most of my life, I thought that the Lord's Prayer was kind of petty and way overused. I'll be honest about that. Like, you know, you go into to certain older churches and they all recite it together and, and there's no life in it. And it's like, what is this? Well, a couple of years ago, I spent some time praying and asking God, God, show me the importance of this prayer. Why is this so important? Or what are the aspects of it that I need to put in my own personal life? And what stood out to me was in the very middle of this prayer, or actually closer to the end, this is what Jesus says. And he tells the people to pray this and lead us not into temptation 
and deliver us or but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. There is an enemy that is out to destroy us and we need all the help we can get to be delivered from him. And we should be asking God for that. And it comes out again. I found it later in the book of John. Jesus is in the upper room. He's, he's with his disciples. It's the last supper. He's preparing them for what's about to happen to him. He's about to die. He's about to go to the cross and be crucified. And he knows that his followers, his disciples, those closest to him, think that something miraculous is going to happen, that he is going to usher in this new kingdom and that he will destroy Rome and all this stuff. And God knows that it's going to be really dark before it gets really bright. And so Jesus is praying for his disciples as he's about to leave. And he prays this in John chapter 17. I'd encourage you this week, if you get time, read the whole chapter. It's really encouraging. But this is his prayer for his disciples. And this is my prayer as I close out this sermon for us as a group of people. It says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. He's talking about his disciples and us. Don't take them out of the world. He doesn't say, go plant a church somewhere on an island where they don't have to deal with people that don't believe in Jesus. That's not what he says. He says, don't take them out of the world. Leave them in the world. But that you would protect them from the evil one. Protect them from the evil one. My prayer for us as a people is that we would open our eyes, that God would open our eyes to see that there is an enemy of our soul. His name is Satan and he wants to destroy us. And as a church, may we begin to pray for our families, our marriages, our children, our elders, our pastors, for one another, that we would be unified together in the mission that God has called us to in storming the gates of hell and we wouldn't be ignorant of the devil's activity, but that we would pray that God would protect us. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy through Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. And God, my prayer is today that you would help us in this battle against the enemy. I I confess in, in the many years that I've been following you, I still don't completely understand how this battle works. But God, I know there is a battle and I trust you in it. And I pray that you would protect us from the devil's schemes and keep us safe that we might bring you honor and glory, both as individuals, as families, and as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.